your Bibles this morning, and I trust that you do. If you can open with me to 1 John in your Bibles, 1 John chapter 2. So not the Gospel of John, but 1 John is towards the back of the Bible. If you get to Revelation, flip a few um, back and you will get to 1 John. And welcome to week 3 of a series that we are calling Unshakable, where we are walking through the book of 1 John. And just think about this, the reason that we desire to walk verse by verse um, through books of the Bible like we're doing is because when left to ourselves, so when we leave it to ourselves, we often only choose to whether to listen or to meditate on portions of Scripture that either resonate um, with us or that relate to us. It's almost as if we believe that the purpose of the Bible is to relate to us instead of meditating on how our lives relate to it. And so think about this. If, if I, as your pastor, if I only chose and some pastors do this. They read the Bible throughout the week, and whatever passage um, just kind of speaks to them, they preach on that um, that Sunday. But if I, your pastor, only choose to speak on portions of Scripture that resonate with me during my time in the Word, um, during the week, then here's the question. Who's driving the doctrine of our church? And the answer would be, I am, or my emotions are, or whatever's speaking to me that week is. Yet, if we instead walk verse by verse through Scripture, even the tough and even the difficult ones, then we are letting God and His Word drive the doctrine and drive what we believe. Um, I pray that that will always be so among us, that we will always let God's Word drive our beliefs and, and drive where we're headed. So on week one, we saw that the main reason that John wrote um, this letter was that we may know that we have eternal life. The Apostle John wanted believers then and wants believers now to know that we know that we know that we have eternal life. And I, as your pastor, I wholeheartedly desire that every person in this room obtains assurance of your salvation or grows in your assurance of salvation. Yet what absolutely scares me, and please hear this, it scares me that there is such a thing as false assurance there's such a thing as false salvation where people think based on something they've done whether it be pray to prayer walk denial dumped in a baptismal or they're um, being raised in a christian home they think that something they've done has been how they have salvation when in fact they have never been saved I think about Jeremy's testimony last week as he talked about Go To Nations, his anticipation for his trip to Nigeria to work with brothers and sisters there. And I just thought about just the completely different context that our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world live in. For them, they're dealing with extreme poverty that we know nothing about, and they are also dealing with extreme persecution. And then I th think about us and our context that we live in. And it becomes clear that our greatest challenge is not persecution by the world. Our greatest cha challenge is seduction by the world. That the world that we live in has seduced us. And the fact that we have become worldly just like it is. Uh, a century ago, or over a century ago, Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, I believe one of the reasons why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Then he says this, put your finger on any prosperous phase in the church's history and you will find a little marginal note that says in this age, 
people could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. And we are living in a day and age, brothers and sisters, where one can't tell where the world ends and where the church begins. And I know we have many different thoughts on why that is, but let me say this, study after study has shown that the lifestyle of professing Christians is no different from the lifestyle of those who don't claim Christianity. Let me just give you a few examples, and it's about to get a little rough in here, but we need this. Professing believers, so people who, who profess or say they are believers are just as self-focused, just as sexually immoral, racially, we're even more divided than the world that we live in. We're also just as materialistic. Our spending patterns, our giving patterns are similar to that of the world. It's been said that only 6% of professing Christians actually tithe to the church, meaning we're spending our money on all the same things that the world spends their money on. The percentage of professing Christian men who view pornography is the same, the exact same as that of non-Christian men. Professing Christians are just as likely to have sex outside of marriage. Whether we're single or married, it doesn't matter. Sexual activity with someone who's not your spouse is just as common among professing Christians as among those who aren't. In marriages, professing Christians are just as likely to get divorced as non-Christians. In parenting, the priorities of professing Christian parents are the exact same as the priorities of those in the world, meaning that we take our kids all over town pursuing the exact same things that the world and, and their kids are pursuing while not pursuing or not giving ourselves to the Word of God or giving our children to the Word of God. It's been said that the average, the average professing Christian um, attends church or average Christian family attends church 1.6 times a month. Just think about this picture. Think about all the things that we set before our kids or our kids set before themselves. And then think about the word of God. All of these things should alarm us. And the question that I pray comes to our mind is this. Do all of these statistics or these things that are absolutely true, do they point to the reality that Christian faith really isn't enough to keep us from immorality or from idolatry? Or a better way to say it is this. Does Christianity matter at all? Does Christianity matter in our marriages? Does it matter in our families? Does it really matter? Is that what this is all saying, that really our Christian faith doesn't really matter at all and we're just the same as the world? Or are these examples declaring that there are many people who profess to be saved and yet they act no different from the world? And the world would say very, or excuse me, the word would say very clearly, they aren't saved. They aren't saved something here hear this something needs to change something must change we are living just like the world we're acting just like the world you know i didn't even get into the fact of how oftentimes we're more critical than the world we gossip more than the world we shoot our own more all these things that we do even more than the world does something has to change brothers and sisters so we must turn from the world and let us instead turn to the word and see what the word says. So this morning, 
1 John chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 3 and read through verse 17. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word together. So 1 John 2, beginning at verse 3 through verse 17, the apostle John writes these words. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we come today to... Lord, a difficult subject, but a subject, Lord, of how we can know that we know that we have eternal life. God, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us today by your word, through your spirit, to each and every person in this room. Lord, just help us understand this is not the opinions of man, Lord. This is the absolute declaration of you. And help us to line our lives up in this moment with that. Oh, God, speak, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So just think about this. We are a fragile, um, we're, we're fragile creatures. We're fragile people who often hold to fragile assurances. Yet the assurance that we need the most in this life is the assurance of our salvation. Many, of course, believe that um, assurance of salvation should not be sought because it's not even possible. Some say to say that you can know that you have salvation is altogether prideful. But I would say this, if God declares that it's possible for us to have full assurance of our salvation, which he does in his word, he even commands that we seek after it, then it would probably be arrogant for us to deny or neglect um, assurance of salvation. So what I want to do this morning is I want to, from our text, unpack four ways that we can know that we know that we have eternal life, or really four proofs that give evidence that we are true believers. So four proofs that give evidence that we are true believers, straight from um, the text today. So four truths. Number one, true believers 
obey the commandments of God. True believers obey the commandments of God. In a January 2015 interview in GQ magazine, um, basketball superstar Kevin Durant, maybe you know him, maybe you don't, but he talked about his spiritual transformation that took place in his life after learning about God's love from a famous New York pastor. And he explained that he once lived in fear. In his words, he says this, he lived in fear that if I do something wrong, I'm going to hell. I felt like I had to follow the Ten Commandments. But he continues, we don't live by that anymore. We live by the blood of Jesus. That's how I feel. Now, I'm hoping that he meant that I used to live in constant fear of angry and vengeful God who was out to get me because I couldn't keep the commandments and with the penalty of hell constantly hanging over my head. But now I realize that Jesus died for um, my sins and he's given me a new heart. And now I serve God not in terror, but I serve God in love. I, I pray that that's what he meant. I pray that he didn't mean because Jesus died for me, I don't have to do anything because... I'm good. And let me just say this. Unfortunately for many professing believers, that's exactly what they mean. They mean that I have prayed a prayer. I've walked an aisle. I'm good with God. Therefore, I can do whatever I want to because I'm forgiven. And in saying that, they have, they have somehow managed to ignore the very words of Jesus who, who said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus who said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And so the Apostle John, in fighting against our human and sinful tendency to forget that, says in verse 3 here of chapter 2, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Think of this. If I were to ask you this morning, and I'm not doing this, so if, but if I were to ask you this morning, raise your hands in here if you love God. I would probably hope to say that every hand would go up. Yet, if I were then to ask you how many of you are presently right now obeying the commands of God, obeying all that you know God is calling you to do, I would guess to say not as many hands would go up. Yet, according to John and according to Jesus, I ask you the same exact question. That's the same question. Do you love God? Yes. Do you keep his commands? Well, no. Then according to Jesus and according to John, then you don't love him. This is the same question. Do you love God? Do you keep his commandments? For those who love God, obey him. So John is saying that genuine saving faith is not just obeying God back when somewhere, but it's obeying God right now. And I'm not saying that we have to obey God in order to be saved. That would contradict everything that the Bible says. But here's the deal. We keep the commandments not so that we will be saved. We keep the commandments because we are saved. Because we are saved. This is how we know that we have been saved by Jesus. We become like Jesus. Or a different way of saying it, what is a Christian? By definition, the word Christian means follower of Christ. Follower of Christ. So if you are not following Christ, if you're not obeying Christ, if you're not trusting Christ, if you're not um, becoming like Christ, you have no biblical grounds for calling yourself a Christian. You have none. It's amazing that somehow we believe that, and, and people all the time believe this, that, that the Ten Commandments lead us to salvation, but then once we're saved, we're free just to break them all. And it's like, yeah, you know, hey, don't murder until you're saved, and you're free for all. That's not what God was saying. And so here's the point. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. 
True believers obey the commandments of God. Not that we're earning anything, but because something has happened in us. Secondly, true believers love those made in the image of God. True believers love those made in the image of God. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. In verse 7 and 8 it says, Behold, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you. So I believe that the the Gospel of John was written before this letter, before the letters were written, and that the letters assume knowledge of the Gospel of John. So in talking about new commands and old commands, John is taking his readers back to John 13, something they would have probably been very familiar with, where Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And to briefly explain this whole um, you know, new commandment, old commandment thing, the command to love obviously is not new. It's, it's been around from the very beginning. You can find it in Deuteronomy. You can find it in Leviticus. You can find it all throughout the Old Testament. But the command to love took on a whole new meaning when Jesus came. Think of it like this. In love, Jesus left the throne of heaven to come down into our darkness. In love, he laid down his life, taking on our sin, dying in our place. And now, for all who have trusted him as Savior and Lord, he lives in us, which means that we are able to love others like he does. Here's a couple of good questions for us. Are we loving people around us? As a church, are we loving our community around us? Here's a better one. Are we loving our brothers and sisters in this faith family? Are we loving each other the way we should? Listen, there is no place in here for petty, stupid stuff. There's no place for that. You might say, well, you don't know what they've done to me. I don't care what they've done to you. God, God's word says forgive them. And if you can't do that, then you obviously don't care about God forgiving you. And so therefore, what are we supposed to do with that? If, if Christians who claim to be Christians, who have been saved forever, can't do the right things, then what can we do with that? And here's the thing, nothing, nothing. There, if we won't do what God has called us to do, God help us. God help us because we are in trouble. Are we loving our brothers and sisters well? John Piper says this, the verse, this verse is a very remarkable rebuke. For John, the commandment of love belongs to what people should hear from the beginning. It's not an optional stage two in Christian growth. So loving others isn't an optional stage two that we take on. It's like, yeah, I've chosen, I've chosen that one. I'm good. No, God from the very beginning tells us you love one another. Is that true of you? Is that true of us? Because the Bible says here in verses 9 and 10, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. There is a church tradition which says that the Apostle John, who wrote this letter when he was older in age, had to be carried by his disciples to the church. They would carry him, they would place him up front, and all he would say is this, little children, love one another. Then he would make the nod, they would come and pick him up and carry him home. 
Finally, his disciples really got tired of hearing that Sunday after or week after week after week or day after day after day. And they finally come to him and say, why do you only say the same words? You can say other things to which John responded. It is the Lord's command. And if we alone do this, it will be enough. If we alone love one another, it will be enough. How will the world know that we're disciples by our love for one another? True believers love those made in the image of God, which is every person made in his image. Which leads us to number three, true believers. I feel like you guys are either, either there's conviction setting around in this place or you guys have checked out a long time ago. I, I pray it's the first. So please let's finish strong together. True believers experience the love of God. True believers experience the love of God. If you look at verses 12 through 14, John uses three different terms twice to identify his audience. He says, I'm writing to you little children. I'm writing to you fathers. I'm writing to you young men. And now, what is John saying? Is he just talking to those specific individuals? What he's saying, or what, what is he saying in, in kind of addressing this? And there's little doubt that what he is doing is he is addressing believers in terms of, get this, their spiritual maturity and not their chronological age. Meaning, there are young believers in the church, there are maturing believers in the church, there are mature believers. There are different levels of spiritual maturity all across this room. Now, some is, is a very good thing. Others of that is not a good thing. There are some that have been on your Christian journey for a year, and you've grown more than some have grown in 40 years. There's others who claim to be saved for 50 years, and yet they don't have the spiritual maturity above that of a child. And that is a sad and scary thing. But listen to what John says. He says, I'm writing to you, and just, just follow here in verse 12, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Verse 13, because you know him who is from the beginning. Also, verse 13, because you have overcome the evil one, because you know the Father. Um, verse 14, because you know him who is from the beginning. So what John is saying is, I'm writing to you who know something. I'm writing to you who have had an experience with someone. I'm writing to you who have experienced the very love of God. So what he's saying here is a picture. Have we and are we experiencing God's love? Have you experienced God's love? Are you right now experiencing his love? Pastor Colin Smith put it this way. Many Christians live at a great distance from a felt experience of the love of God. So much Christianity in the West is shallow and satisfied. It affirms a creed, but it so often lacks spiritual life. Across the country, there are millions of people who have a faith, who've been brought up in the church to believe Jesus died and rose, but they have no living experience with the love of God. Let me give you a real-life example of God's love flooding a person's soul so that I pray that we would be encouraged to seek God for that ourselves. And one of the most intense descriptions of this kind of experience comes from the life of, of Blaise Pascal, he was a French mathematician and scientist. So I want to be very careful here. A lot of people believe that, yeah, these experiences with God, those are for these you know, touchy-feely kind of people, these people who you know, have all these emotions. Those are the people that kind of have these experiences. And, but not me. I'm very practical and I'm very pragmatic. And I'm, but we're talking about a man who was a mathematician and a scientist. He had an extraordinary experience with God. It lasted about two hours. He scribbled some notes of what happened. He then sewed it into his coat jacket, and it was found um, after he passed away. And it was 
kind of what I would think about just so many things flooding his mind because a lot of it's just kind of um, just throwing stuff against the wall. But listen to what he says. He says, this day of grace, 1654, from about half past 10 at night to half after midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the, not the God of philosophers or scholars. Security, filling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, greatness of the human soul, joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. Just think about this. What was happening in his heart, in his mind, in that moment? And what was happening is he was experiencing in a fresh and a new the love of God. Have you experienced God's love? Are you experiencing his love? Recently, a seminary professor asked 120 of her students this question. Do you believe that God loves you? Out of 120 Christian students preparing for ministry, how many do you think said, yes, I believe God loves me? Out of 120, two. Two. These are people that are going to be leading churches, and they say two. And the most given answer was this. I know that the Bible says that God loves me, but I just don't feel it. And if that's you, let me tell you why you don't feel it, because you're disobedient. You don't feel it because you're disobeying God. That's why you don't feel it. But one pastor of old put it this way. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. You can know honey is sweet because someone tells you, but you don't really know how sweet it is until you've tasted it. In the same way, somebody can tell you that God loves you, but until you experience in the sweetness of it how much God loves you, you'll never really believe it. You'll never really believe it the way you should believe it. True believers experience and continue to experience the love of God. Which leads us to the last truth, which is this. True believers resist the world and its God. And notice that we did not put that capital God in the very end because that is talking about the evil one. And beginning at verse 15 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now think about this. We do not love the world. Now let me ask a question. Does that contradict with John 3.16? In John 3.16, we're told that God so loved the world. And then here in 1 John 2.15, we're told that we're not allowed to love the world. So God can love the world, but we can't love the world. Is, is that what's, is that what's um, being said here? Is that the picture that we get? And the answer, of course, is no. The word world that's being used is a different word in each text. In John 3.16, the word world is humanity in its fallen nature that is in need of redemptive grace. Yet in 1 John 2.15, the word world is talking about a system. It is a system of thoughts, ideas, practices, patterns, pleasures that are set up against God, against his word, against his ways. 
And the, the reason that we should not love the world and its systems is because we cannot love the world and love God at the same time. How do I know that? Because of this. Either the love of, wor- uh, love of the world will push out in us the love of God, or the love of God will push out in us the love of the world. Let me say that again. Either the love of this world will push out the love of God in our hearts, or the love of God in our hearts will push out in us the love of this world. One pastor said this, John describes worldliness as cravings of our sinful flesh. He calls them lust of the flesh. We could call them gluttony or sexual perversion or drunkenness or etc. Then he says lust of the eyes, which is our sexual lust, our coveting. Then he says our pride of life or our arrogant pride by which we boast in ourselves instead of giving thanks to God. And then he says this, in our age filled with advertising, rock stars, supermodels, and celebrities, it's not an overstatement to say that if worldliness means living only to please our flesh and pursue what our eyes lust after so that we can arrogantly boast about our conquest and our accomplishments, then worldliness is a synonym for America. Worldliness is a a synonym for where we live and unfortunately sometimes how we live. Therefore, John reminds us, look at how this whole section ends in verse 17. John says, the world is passing away along with its desires. Listen, nobody buys stock in a company that's sure to go bankrupt. Nobody who hears that a ship is going down says, hey, let me go back to my room and make up my bed and leave it. No, we don't do that. In the same way, the picture is the world that many love is passing away. It will not last. And then John says this, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Meaning that getting God means that we are getting something better than the world could ever offer us. Getting God is something better than the world could ever offer us. In case you don't believe it, let me tell you, put it this way. God is better than money. He's better than money. He is infinite. He is a loving supplier of our needs. And get this, his stocks never drop. God's, we never have to worry about God's stock crashing. It will never do so. He is better than human love. Even though I thank God for earthly marriage, earthly marriage is just a shadow of something better that we crave. The tenderness, the affection, the security that we long for can only be found in His arms. He is better than all earthly pleasures. Even though earthly pleasures oftentimes kind of present themselves to us like rays from the sun. We're not supposed to get caught up in the rays. We're supposed to understand where they come from, which is the sun. God is, he's better than all earthly powers. He holds, God holds and sustains every molecule, every atom, every neutron, every electron. And he promises to commandeer all of those things for your good and for my good. God is better than popularity. Who cares what anybody else thinks about you if you have the um, attention, if you have the love, the delight, the approval of the God of the universe? Who cares what others think about you? Whatever you compare God with, God wins. God wins. Whatever we choose to compare God with, the ways of this world and all of its sinful desires is like drinking salt water. 
How many of you have ever gone to the beach, got out in the water, and you find yourself drinking salt water? You turn, and it's in your mouth. And here's the thing. It looks like something that should be able to take away your thirst. But the more you drink it, the thirstier you become, and it can never, ever satisfy you. And thus, my friends, that is the world. The world looks like it can offer satisfaction, but the more we take in, the less we're satisfied, the more we have to do, the more we have to take, and we are never, ever satisfied. In the words of F.F. Bruce, he says, The one effective antidote to worldliness is to have one's heart so filled with the Father's love that it has no room for any other love that is incompatible with that. To have our hearts so filled with God's love. Salvation is not the reward that we that we get, that we have from overcoming the world. Salvation is the power that lives within us that allows us to overcome this world. Let me ask you this morning in closing, are you obeying the commands of God? I'm not talking about behavior modification. That's what some people think when they think of salvation. You know, lost people out there quit doing bad things. Lost people were able to modify, modify their behavior. Lost people are able to hear a doctor say, if you keep doing this, you're going to die. And lost people are able to go, I need to stop doing that. And they do. So we're not talking about behavior modification where we go, well, good people do all these things. So I'm going to do that. And therefore, I guess I'm going to identify myself as a Christian. We're not talking about behavior modification. We're talking about has Christ taken up residence in your heart. And because of his taking up residence in your heart, you are now as a um, bubbling up of that, you are obeying his commands. When was the last time you did what God called you to do? Then next, think about this. How are we loving others? How are we loving those made in the image of God? How are we loving our community? How are we loving our neighbors? How are we loving those within this faith family? Are we loving them the way that God has called us to love them? Are we loving them as an overflow of his love for us the book of romans says that god has poured his love through his holy spirit into our hearts and god doesn't intend for us to store that up and just let it sit there god intends for us as his love is poured into our hearts for it to overflow in our hearts and affect others and we don't just love people that we like we have to love everyone listen what did jesus say it's easy to love people who love you Jesus said, even sinners do that. But Jesus took it a step further. He said, love those who don't like you. In fact, even love those who hate you. Can that be said of us? And then are we experiencing the love of God? Are we experiencing his love? I don't want you just to say, yeah, um, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Yeah, that's true. The Bible does tell us so. But we have to experience it. We have to know it. Do you know that God loves you? Are you experiencing that love and are you resisting the world and the god of this world oh that we would not love this world or the things of this world that we would love the father that we would love him with all of our heart with all of our soul with all of our mind with all of our strength that we would love him now we would love him more tomorrow we would love him more the next day and the next after that where are we this morning all of these things that are said of true believers how do, this is like going um, to the doctor and getting a checkup. This is a pretty clear picture of where we are in our faith. Where do you measure up? 
Where do you measure up? If, if we go to the doctor of God's word this morning, is, is the doctor of God's word looking at you today saying, you're sick, you're not doing very well? Or is, or is the doctor of God's word saying, you're, you're on track, or you're growing in this way? Not that any of us have arrived, but you're growing. Let us let the word of God and the spirit of God do in our hearts and lives today what only he and only it can. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand this morning. We're going to ask the musicians to come forward as we enter into a time of invitation and consecration where we say this, whatever God is telling you to do today, that you would do it. Not for my glory, not even for your glory, it's for your good, but ultimately for God's glory. So let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, what a tough word that is, God, but it is a word that every single person in this room, every single believer, every single unbeliever needs to hear God that there are certain evidences of our life in you and if those things aren't existent your word is telling us very clearly that we're not saved and instead of if that's true instead of getting mad Lord your your word is there to not to make us mad but to make us repent to make us humble ourselves and turn to you alone for salvation but also, Lord, to help us as believers to understand that there are, there are places in our lives that we still revert back to doing the things of the world. Maybe we know there's commandments in our lives, things that you've told us to do, God, that we haven't done. Lord, help us to go back and to respond by saying yes. Maybe we know that there are relationships by which we're not loving others the way we should. God, forgive us. Lord, help us to love others the way you have loved us as you're pouring your love into our hearts and lives. But for others today, we have a head knowledge of, of your love, but yet we have somehow, some way stopped experiencing that love. God, help us in a fresh and a new way today to experience, to know, to believe with all of our hearts, God, how much you love us. And help us, Lord, to love you so that the love of the world in our hearts would be pushed out and not the other way around. Lord, you are more satisfying than anything this world can offer. God, help us to believe that today. Finish this time in Jesus' name. Amen.